Well, please take your Bibles and turn back to John 6, where we just were for our time in communion, and we're going to continue looking at this uh, epic discourse on the bread of life. For those of us living in an affluent country like America, where, where we have an overabundance of food choices, bread is nothing special. It's just bread. Uh, we've got used to going into grocery stores and just seeing a whole aisles full of bread products, right? And uh, we're not wowed by bread. Why? Because our survival doesn't depend on bread like those who live in third world countries today or those who live back in Bible times. But what if I told you that I discovered a, a non-perishable food source It was all natural, no preservatives, and yet it never got stale or moldy or would never run out. It would constantly replenish itself, and by eating it, you would never die, but you would live forever. Well, you would naturally assume that you would have to pay an arm and a leg for a product like that. But what if I also told you that it was absolutely free, and the only thing you needed to do was to take it? And eat it in faith, believing that it would keep you alive forever. Surely some of you would be interested and excited to try it. But then there would be others, likely the majority of you, who would be skeptical and think it was too good to be true. There's no way that that could be true. And you might demand that I provide you more proof. And that's how most of the people responded when Jesus offered himself as the bread of life. And today, we're going to continue where we left off in our study of Jesus' famous discourse in John chapter 6, which uh, he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum the day after he had miraculously fed well over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And we said last week that Jesus' discourse on the bread of life was intended to rescue people from an empty life. By showing them that he can not only provide physical food to satisfy our stomachs, but more importantly, spiritual food to satisfy our souls. And we saw how this discourse really unfolds in three parts. It begins with questioning, the crowds uh, questioning Jesus in verses 22 through 40, which led to them quibbling or grumbling and complaining in verses 41 to 51, and then finally... This discourse climaxes in full-on quarreling, uh, arguing. And uh, as Jesus conversed with the crowd, it seems that the tension built and their questioning turned into quibbling, which ultimately resulted in quarreling. And so last week, we began looking at verses 22 through 40 uh, about how Jesus was questioned by the crowds, the crowds being those who witnessed And benefited from Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish. They had followed him to Capernaum, which served as his base of ministry. And so they began to pepper him with questions, which provided him this golden opportunity to show them the real spiritual significance of the miracle they had done the day before. Which, at that point, they had missed completely. um, Because they weren't seeking him because of who he was, but rather because of what he could do for them. They didn't see him as the Messiah, but simply as their next free meal. They were more concerned 
with their, about their stomachs and they were about their souls. Verse 27, that's why Jesus said, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So Jesus rebukes them for striving or working for physical food, which only lasts for a short time, and he exhorts them to seek out spiritual food, which will last forever. And so automatically their, their interest is piqued, but they're looking at, they're responding based on their reference point, which was a works-based religion, right? Verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? They wanted to know what they had to do to get this eternal life that Jesus spoke of. And again, this was as a result of the influence of the religious leaders of that day who taught them that salvation could be earned by by a person's good works. And then Jesus' uh, unforgettable answer, probably one of the most important verses in all of the New Testament, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, all we're required to do is to simply believe that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners like us. And it's really not anything we can do in and of ourselves. It's ultimately, we know faith is a gift from God, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So we can't even say that's a work. It's a gift. But Jesus was speaking in the language that they would understand. Verse 30, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So rather than believing in him like he was challenging them to do, they demanded more proof. They wanted another miracle that would prove he was worthy of their trust and commitment as their Messiah. And what they wanted to do, wanted him to do, was outdo Moses. If you want us to believe that you're the prophet that Moses promised, then you've got to do something bigger and better than Moses. And Moses provided food every day for 40 years to sustain the people in the wilderness. All you did was provide us one meal, one day. You got anything, got anything else you can show us? And again, Jesus clarified that it was not Moses, but God who had given him the food. Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And again, we talked about this out of heaven statement seven times in this whole discourse, out of heaven, out of heaven, out of heaven, from heaven. Jesus was making a point, I've come from heaven. You want to talk about bread from heaven? I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the true manna. And so the manna that God sent back in the Old Testament was a type of Christ. In other words, it foreshadowed like so many other things in the Old Testament, i.e. the sacrificial system, right? It foreshadowed how God would one day send Jesus from heaven to be the bread of life, to provide sustenance, not just for our bodies, but for our souls. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Again, still missing the spiritual implications of what he was saying. And so he had to spell it out very plainly for them. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. We said that was... um, Reminiscent of the Old Testament, I am, right? Moses asked, who should I tell the people what God sent me? He said, tell them the great I am sent you. The God who's always been, 
who always is and always will be. And so Jesus adopted this expression, I am. He used it seven times, at least John records seven I am statements. Uh, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We're going to see these all through uh, chapter 15 here in, in the Gospel of John. But this is the first one. And he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So even though Jesus had clearly revealed himself to be the Messiah, they still refused to believe in him. But we said last week, this didn't discourage Jesus because he was confident that God's sovereign purposes would be fulfilled no matter who believed or didn't believe. Because no matter who rejected him, he knew that all those that God had chosen before the foundations of the earth to give to him as a gift of love would ultimately believe in him and be his forever. And we looked at verse 37 where we see um, Jesus emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And here we talked about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. But then lest anyone think they're not one of God's elect and they can never be saved, Jesus quickly says, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So Jesus reassured us that if we truly want to be saved and we come to him in humble faith, he'll save us. And he says in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that last day. And here we have Jesus emphasizing man's responsibility right on the heels of emphasizing God's sovereignty. So you've got God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side, holding hands, if you will, in the pages of Scripture. And we said it's not up to us to figure out whether or not we're one of God's elect. We're simply to repent and believe. That's what the Bible teaches. And again, this is just one example in, in in the Bible of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation are taught side by side. And that's helpful to us because it just reminds us that this is not a problem for God. It's a problem for us. We can't figure this out in our minds. This doesn't make sense. These things seem to be opposites. They contradict one another. It's what J.I. Packer in his excellent book, the Sovereign, what's it called? Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, where he calls it an antinomy which is the fancy word that simply means two opposing truths that seem to contradict themselves. How can both of these things be true at the same time? And so in our own human minds, it's impossible to reconcile these two contradictory truths. But in the mind of God, they make sense. Uh, Another illustration that I have used in times past that is helpful, it's like you have, uh, if you're standing on a train track, right, and you've got two parallel tracks, and right next to you they seem parallel, right? But as you look off into the horizon, what, what, what happens to them? They narrow and they become one. They come together. And I think as we look towards eternity, right, these things that seem to never cross, right, are going to come together uh, in our minds once we're glorified. And uh, because we will be like Christ and we will understand 
the things of God. I even think not completely. Even in heaven, I don't think we're going to completely understand because then we'd be God and we're not going to be God. But I think we'll understand a little better what seems so unclear in our minds today. I was talking to someone last week as they were leaving and I thought what they said was so encouraging. They said, you know, one of the most liberating things that ever happened in my Christian life is when I realized that God didn't expect me to understand election, but to simply believe it. Because you could sit around the rest of your life trying to figure it out, trying to understand it, and guess what? Ain't ain't happening. You're just going to frustrate yourself. So receive it by faith like everything else in the Bible you don't understand. You got everything else in the Bible figured out yet? I don't. But these are things we accept by faith because they're there. And even though our minds can't fully comprehend what is there, we believe them by faith. And again, it's a great reminder that these are some of the doctrines that uh, we must deal with in our minds, right, that remind us how worthy God is of our worship. That his ways are far beyond our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And he's worthy, so worthy to be worshipped. Someone said it this way. It's, the doctrine of election is the price we have to pay to worship a God who's so worthy. Just, just what we have to put up with, right? To, 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 to worship a God who is so worthy. So that's the questioning. We looked at that last week. Now let's move on to the second section of this discourse, which we've called quibbling, which is another word for complaining or grumbling. And uh, notice verse 41. This is where we left off. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? So they were getting exactly what he was trying to say, <clears throat> that I'm not from this earth. I'm from above. And it says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. I think since everyone in the crowd was Jewish, when John mentioned the Jews, I think he was likely referring to the Jewish religious leaders um, who were in Galilee as well as in Jerusalem, but they refused to see Jesus anything but an ordinary man, just like had happened in Jerusalem, and they grumbled about his lofty claims despite his lowly background. And they're essentially asking, how, how could he say he came from heaven when we know he came from Capernaum? He's from this region. We know he grew up over in Nazareth, across the tracks, Right? We know his mom and dad. So how can he say that God is his father? Well, they were right to some degree. Joseph was his legal father, but not his natural father. And they failed to understand what Jesus taught about his virgin birth. In Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to, to Mary. This is what he said in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. 
when Gabriel told her that she was going to have a son, she said, how's that going to happen? Verse 34, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And then Gabriel went on to describe this. He says, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the son of Joseph. Is that what it says? No. For that reason, the Most High will overshadow you, will impregnate you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the son of God. And so that's another thing that's hard to comprehend, right, in Scripture. A virgin birth. Never seen one of those before. Never happened before, never happened after. Why would we think it could happen? Well, because the Bible says it. And so we believe it by faith. And so these men, these Jewish religious leaders, were denying the virgin birth. They didn't get it. And uh, again, this is reminiscent of what Jesus said about the prophet being without honor in his own country, right? In chapter 4, verse 44, he said, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So this was happening again here in in kind of his base of operations where uh, a number of his disciples lived on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is where they had lived, had grown up. And so Jesus lived there, possibly in Peter's home. But he was without honor in his own country. Notice how Jesus responds to this. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, Jesus isn't done with the sovereignty of God and salvation. He says it again. That no one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him. In other words, you cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws you to Christ. None of us drew ourselves to Christ. We were drawn to Christ. This word draw here is a very strong word that's used elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John 21 Verse 6, it talks about dragging a net to catch fish. In Acts chapter 21, it's talked about, it's used to drag someone from the temple, right? When Paul was dragged, yanked out of the temple. Um, It's also used in James chapter 2, verse 6, about dragging someone to court, kind of grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and dragging them into court, right? This is the imagery here. C.S. Lewis talked about how he was the most reluctant convert, right, in all of Britain, and uh, that he basically got drug into the kingdom of God with his eyes shifting back and forth looking for an escape the whole time. (laughs) And so it's the Father who draws us to Christ. And the reason the Father has to draw us to Christ is because we would never seek Him and we could never seek Him. Look over at Romans for a second. Romans chapter 3. This is a familiar passage to us. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. Paul's talking about the, the sinfulness of man here. 
and how we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There's no one on this planet who seeks after God by nature. You say, that's not true. Look at all the people seeking God in religion. Well, again, I think what religion is, Romans 1, Paul talks about that, is, is people exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're, they're pursuing all these things, professing to be wise. They're exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, right? Rather than honoring God and giving God thanks, they turn away from God. And, and religion, I think man's religion, man, man-made religion, is an attempt to run away from God, not seek God. It looks like you're seeking God. It looks spiritual, but it's not. You're looking, for an, you're looking for something else. You don't really want to find God. You want to get away from God, according to Romans 1. And so we would never seek Him. The Bible says that. There is no one who seeks after God. And we could never seek Him. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, talking about how we were delivered from bondage to sin. And Paul writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not even subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's already been talking about in Romans chapter 5 how we were, un- we were helpless we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were his enemies. So again, the reason why the Father has to draw us to Christ is because we would never seek him on our own, and even if we wanted to, we couldn't seek him on our own. And this is getting around to the doctrine of what we call total depravity, total depravity, or I prefer the term total inability. In other words, total depravity is simply that we are so wretched in our sin, right, that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Total inability. And really, total depravity or man's depravity is the other side of the coin of God's sovereignty. The reason why God must be sovereign in salvation is because man is depraved in sin. And if there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that means God has to do everything. And so man's depravity and God's sovereignty fit perfectly together. One necessitates the other. I appreciate what John MacArthur has said about depravity. He says, the Bible indicates that fallen man is unable of his own volition to come to Jesus Christ. Unregenerate people are dead in sin Slaves to unrighteousness, alienated from God and hostile to him. They are spiritually blind captives, trapped in Satan's kingdom, powerless to change their sinful natures, unable to please God, and incapable of understanding spiritual truth. You pretty much said everything you could say about man's depravity right there. And so the point is that we are completely helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. And we see this over and over again in scriptures For example, Ephesians chapter 2, 
Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. By the way, I told some people last week um, who were thanking me for addressing the, the issue of election, the subject of election, and I thought, you know, we've been doing this for about 13, 14 years now, and uh, the very first series that I did as a, as a, ch- a church when we planted Lakeside Bible Church, the first book I went through was the book of Ephesians. And uh, the, the very first chapter, I mean, four verses into Ephesians chapter 1 Uh, you have this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And so we stopped there, put on the parking brake, and I did a four-week series on the doctrine of election, because I always got questions. People ask me, hey, what about election? What about election? What about election? I said, so just, let's just sit here for four weeks and let's talk about it. And so I basically said everything I ever read or heard or thought about the doctrine of election in four weeks, and um, I did it so that there would be a, it would be captured in time, and there would be some kind of a way I could say, go listen to the series, because <laughs> I was sick of answering everybody's questions about it, I said, just go listen to the series, <laughs> and so it's there in the, in the archives of our church, if you're interested in hearing uh, kind of a, a, a long, drawn-out version of the doctrine of election, Based on Ephesians chapter 1, um, just talk to the resource center and they can hopefully get you a copy of those four messages. But again, it was just really foundational for the life of our church. And I, and I forget, as I'm just preaching through the scriptures, that we've got a whole new generation of people here that weren't here for that series. And so for some of you, you're hearing this stuff for the first time. And another epic text that we stopped at and hung out on was hung out, it was here in Ephesians chapter 2, which again, like I said, is the other side of the story. You've got God's sovereignty and salvation. You've got man's depravity here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. You know what that word dead means in the Greek? Dead, okay? (laughs) You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, you were completely unable to respond to any stimulus of any kind. You lay a dead body up here, right, and we could talk at it, we could kick it, we could poke it with needles, it ain't moving, it's dead, completely unable to respond, in need of resuscitation, right, like, let's get the paddles, right, maybe that will cause some, or mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, right, it needs to be revived, it needs to be resurrected, and this is what... Paul's talking about here being made alive in Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It was your sin that made you dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Talking about Satan. You're under the control of Satan. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So not only were we controlled by Satan, we were controlled by our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were headed straight to hell. There was nothing we could do about it. Verse 4, but God. If you don't have that underlined, circled, starred in your Bible, but God. God enters the scene. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. In other words, God did not give us what we deserve, but 
because of his great love, which, with the, which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, his, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. Our salvation is not about us. It's about God. And, and him getting glory and honor that he would show off, if, if you will, so that God could show off. He's using us to show off the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This was not the only place in Scripture that talks like that. Look at Titus, Titus chapter 3. Very similar movement here in Paul's mind. In Titus chapter 3, he starts with man's depravity and then goes to God's sovereignty and salvation. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know why people continue to fight for free will. Well, what about our, we have free will. Well, why does the scripture call us enslaved all the time then? That doesn't sound like you have free will. It sounds like you're a slave. We're a slave to sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, there's the big but, right? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Again, God gets all the glory for our salvation. And listen, I love, if you haven't read J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, it's really the best little book you can read to help you think through this whole thing about election. Um, he does an outstanding job. And he says, listen, we're all Calvinists. Have you ever heard someone pray? This is the example he uses at the beginning of his book. Have you ever heard somebody pray? Thank you, God, um, for uh, helping me save myself. Right? Thank you, God, for for, for um, making me um, you know, repent and making me believe all these things and, 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 and all this, you know, that, I, that somehow you did it. You, you, don't, you don't hear people pray that way. And you don't typically hear people talk about their salvation that way. Because we know that ultimately God gets all the glory for our salvation. You got to read the book. It's really good. Evangelism, Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer. The point is this, we would have never chosen Christ if God hadn't first chosen us. Look at verse 70, back in John here, John chapter 6, even in this same chapter, John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus said, did I myself not choose you? He says it again in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And the only reason why we love Christ is because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Notice verse 45. 
after he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And Jesus quoted there Isaiah 54, 13 to show how God draws us to faith in Christ. You say, okay, if the Father draws us, then no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them to Christ. So how does he do that? How does he draw us to faith in Christ? He does it by his Spirit through his Word. That's the essence here of of being taught by God, hearing and learning from the Father. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the Word of God. James 1.18 talks about the word of God's role in our salvation in the exercise of his will, not our will, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Talking about being born again through the scriptures. And then the, in, in 1 Peter, right, right, right next to that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. And so a person believes when they hear the word of God and the spirit of God causes them to understand it and creates an attraction in their hearts toward Christ and draws them to want to give their lives to him and follow and obey him. That's what happened when you got saved. Is you heard the word of God, maybe it was through a message, someone preaching it at some sermon, uh, some church service, some revival, some camp, or somebody was sharing you the word of God, a coworker, a classmate was sharing the word of God, your husband, your, your spouse, whatever, your parent was sharing with you the word of God, and the spirit of God, right, illuminated you, opened up your eyes to see and understand the truth of Scripture because the Bible says the natural man does not understand things of God. So the Spirit of God has to help you understand it. So he opens up your eyes to see and he creates this attraction that begins to draw you, right? The Spirit of God draws you to want to honor Christ, to want to love Christ, to want to obey Christ. That's why when someone is not a believer and maybe they're even wrestling with, well, you know, I'm not saved and, you know, I, somebody told me about this doctrine of election stuff and so I don't, there's nothing I can do to be saved and so I just got to kind of wait around. Well, let me tell you this, if you want to be saved, okay, if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to be under the teaching and preaching of God's word. So get into church, read your Bible. Right? Be in the Word. Read your Bible. Listen to preaching. Because that's the means that God is going to, He always uses. It's called special revelation. You're, you're not going to come to Christ sitting on a mountaintop somewhere going, mm, you know, thinking that it's not going to happen. He's going to use special revelation. Not general revelation, right? All the beauty, that draws us to special revelation, right? But it's only through special revelation, through the Scriptures, that you'll be saved. So get in the Word. Get under the Word. And pray, God, grant me repentance, grant me faith, grant me illumination, may the Spirit of God open my eyes and my mind. Don't sit there passively waiting to get zapped. Pursue the knowledge of God through the Scriptures. 
Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He says it again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus was, again, just reiterating that God had sent him from heaven. And as his son, it is only through the son that we can understand and know the father. Who better to describe the son to us than the one who lived with him for all eternity, right? No one knows the Father better than the Son. And again, Jesus compared himself to to manna and insisted that he was better than the manna in the Old Testament because everyone who ate the manna back then, what happened to them? They died. But everyone who eats him will never die. And so again, Jesus didn't come to provide temporal food, which... Right, The crowds were clamoring around him thinking, hey, this is a great deal. We could just follow this guy the rest of our lives and never have to work a day in our, another day in our lives. He'll provide us food. He didn't come to provide them temporal food that would merely sustain their bodies here on earth, but to provide spiritual food that would sustain our souls forever in heaven. And so he was simply saying, listen, by feeding you barley loaves and fish, I was preparing you to feed on my flesh. You say, that's kind of gross. He says it, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, verse 51. And that word flesh is simply a reference to how he bore our sins in his body on the cross when he died as a substitute for all those who would believe. It's a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. It's like the little wafer we take, right? That represents Christ's flesh, his body which was given for us, which was sacrificed for us. The juice represents, right, his blood that was spilt for us, that was shed for us. Both really talking about his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. That's all these things, these elements represent. And so Jesus wasn't literally telling them eat his flesh, and yet they were repulsed by what he said. And they began to argue among themselves about what Jesus really meant in regards to eating his flesh. I mean, is this guy advocating cannibalism? Is this like a zombie apocalypse? What's going on here, right? So that leads to our third section here, quarreling. Quarreling, verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You can tell they're kind of grossed out by the, whoa, what is he talking about? This guy's getting really weird. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So instead of backing off, right, you you thought that that Jesus said something that was very, um, um, what's the word, controversial. He mentioned his flesh, eating his flesh. And they're like, what is he talking about? What do you mean by eating his flesh? And instead of backing off, 
and going, oh, I'm sorry, that's not really what I meant to say, right? When, whenever you get in a situation and somebody reacts to something, like, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. It's like he, he, he ramped it up. He said, yeah, that's exactly what I said, and let me tell you something else. Not only do you need to eat my flesh, you need to drink my blood. This guy's weird. And, and again, not, he wasn't just weird. He was, he, this was radical. This was shocking to the ears of these people because, because uh, the, the Old Testament law specifically forbid eating human flesh and especially drinking blood. I mean, this was, this was something you weren't supposed to do. And here's Jesus advocating drinking blood. Just look at Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 19. And so this is, uh, this is getting all over these people going, what in the world? Where is this guy going? Now, again, I mentioned it earlier when we took communion. This is not a reference to communion. Even though the imagery here clearly prefigures and foreshadows what communion would be. I, I don't think it makes any sense that Jesus would talk about communion to a crowd of unbelievers before he ever shared it with his disciples. And it would still be another year from this point before he instituted the ordinance of communion on the night before he died. Also, if he was talking about communion here, what that would mean is that partaking in communion is necessary to receive eternal life. In other words, communion, the Lord's Supper, is a means of salvation. Is that true? Of course it's not true. So we know that's not what he was talking about. Because if that's what he was talking about, anyone who has never taken communion or never takes communion will go where? To hell. That's what you'd have to conclude if he was talking about communion. And I say all that because the Roman Catholic Church appeals to this passage to prove the doctrine of transubstantiation. Have you heard of that? Transubstantiation? Which is a false teaching that during communion, the bread and the wine or the juice are transformed, transubstantiation, they're transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. They actually become Christ. When the priest breaks the bread and when he drinks the cup, it actually turns into literal flesh and literal blood. My first question is, does it actually taste like that? Come on, give me a break. You've all taken communion, right? I'm saying this to a Catholic friend or somebody. You've taken communion. Don't tell me when you drank that wine or that juice, you, you tasted blood. You didn't. But that's what they believe is happening. And so essentially what they're doing is they're re-sacrificing Christ every time they take communion, and it serves as, in their minds, their theology, a perpetual sacrifice for sin. Which doesn't fit even the, the tense here of the verbs. The verbs eat and drink here are not present tense, but aorist tense, which suggests a one-time appropriation of Christ as salvation. That's what he's talking about. This is talking about getting saved, not taking communion. This is not a continual eating and drinking of Christ's body and blood, which is what's portrayed in the Catholic Mass. This is talking about getting saved one, one time. This happens one time. You eat the flesh and you drink the blood one time. And that's when you believe. Eating um, to, to, to the Jews, again, 
this, this, this must have sounded like nonsense, but all Jesus was, was, was doing was providing an unforgettable analogy of what it means to truly believe in him. We said that last week, that this whole passage is what does it mean to believe? That's what he's getting. What does it mean to believe? And, and, and look at verse 40. This is interesting, just to compare verse 40 and verse 54. If you're having a hard time, right, what a, good, a good principle of interpretation is let easy, clear passages interpret the harder, less clear passages, okay? The passages are hard to understand. Go find a clear passage that's easy to understand and easy to interpret, and that will help you interpret the easier passages. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son or sees the Son or looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. That's easy to understand, right? You look to the sun, just like they, they put that snake on the pole. Remember that? John chapter 3, they put the snake on the pole, and they looked in faith at that snake, and they were healed, right? So you look and believe. You look and believe in the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will have eternal life. Now look, look at verse 44, 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So what are we saying? That eating and drinking is the same as beholding and believing, it's just an analogy, just a picture. It's a metaphor. And so eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood is another way of saying we must personally take him into our lives to the point that he becomes a part of us. That's what happens when you eat something, you drink something, it, it goes into you, it becomes a part of you. And so his sacrificial death in our place which is represented by his body and his blood, must be accepted, it must be assimilated, it must be appropriated, it must be applied, it must be internalized through an act of faith. That's all this is talking about. Food is useless if we don't eat it. And Christ is useless if we don't believe in him. In order to enjoy the benefits of food, we must eat it and digest it Looking at food, touching it, even tasting it won't do anything for us. And it's not enough just to hear about Christ, to see Christ, and even maybe taste Christ. Hebrews talks about that. Some of you even have tasted Christ. It's not enough. You must consume Christ if we want to enjoy the merits of his life and his death. And as long as you refuse to receive God's free gift of salvation through faith in the sinless life and substitutionary death of Christ, then you will not have eternal life. It's like the beggar standing outside the bakery with his nose pressed up against the window, right? He's looking at the bread. He can even see the steam coming off of it. It looks good, smells good, right? Maybe somebody even gave him a little sample of it. But he still feels the hunger pains. Why? Because he hasn't eaten the bread. And so Jesus is saying, eat me, believe me, take me into your life, consume me. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In other words, you become one, right? When you eat, food and drink something, it becomes one with you. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the Father's ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. 
And so again, just a reminder here is when we receive Christ, we're united with Christ, we abide in him, and he abides in us, just like the Father and the Son are united and they abide together, and just like the Son lives because he abides in the Father, so we too will live if we abide in Christ. And verse 58 is just a summary of the entire discourse. It says it in one sentence, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, not the man in the wilderness, he who eats this bread will live forever. In other words, if you receive me, Jesus Christ, as your personal Lord and Savior, not only will he save your soul forever, but he will satisfy your soul here and now. This Christianity stuff is not just for when we die. It's not just to get out of hell free card, right? It's for the here and now. It's for life on earth, a life of satisfaction where our hungers and our thirsts are satisfied in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we've had in your word and thank you that Jesus is the bread of life. He wasn't just the bread of life back then, he even is today, and that he can satisfy that hunger in every one of our hearts, and that we, when we receive him and we repent and believe, Lord, we not only can have abundant life here on this earth, but Lord, we can have the confidence and the hope of eternal life in heaven someday. Lord, I pray that we would not seek satisfaction in other things besides Christ, Lord, but we would truly be able to say with the psalmist, whom have we in heaven but you, Christ, and on earth we desire nothing. And Lord, give us excitement and enthusiasm to share this amazing person, the person of Christ, with those who need to hear. Lord, if we knew about some food product that could cause people to live forever, we'd be running around town telling everybody about it. And it'd be fun to tell people about it. And I pray that you would restore the joy of evangelism in our hearts, that it would just be fun to tell people about Jesus and how he's changed our lives and how he can change their life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, we have uh, an opportunity before we dismiss this morning to welcome some new members into our church. And so before we do that, just to let you know, if you're visiting with us today, before you leave, just um, when we dismiss you, if you could go to our Welcome Center, which is just straight across the hall, there's some people that are ready to meet you, and we like to give all of you first-time first visitors some gifts and things, so make sure you do that. But in the meantime, I want to invite uh, some new members up, and then we're going to share the, our membership covenant together. And so I'm going to call out their names, and uh, th- would you just please come and stand across the front here when I, I call your names? Uh, Thomas and Chris Adamic. Hopefully, uh, all these people made it this first service. Um, Richard and Linda Boehm. They're all out in the foyer. They can't even hear me, right? George and Diane Kennedy. Yeah, they're just all out there fellowshipping out there. They're just like, hi, how you doing? Nice to see you. They're just all hanging out. Um, Scott and Cindy Davis. David and Catherine Hensley. Come on down front, guys. And uh, Trisha Purcell, who's not here this morning because she's at summer camp, but we wanted to read her name 
Anyway, so just kind of line yourself up across the front here, if you don't mind. Some of these uh, folks have got their children with them as well. But uh, we've had a great uh, month together, meeting in my office the last uh, four Sundays, and uh, just have really grown to love these folks. Uh, All of them have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They come to us um, really well-equipped. They come from other strong churches, and and, uh, we're very, very encouraged about this particular uh, class, if you will, of of new members, and uh, they've been nothing but a joy, nothing but a blessing uh, to get to know um, these next, uh, or these last four weeks, and so uh, I'm going to ask you just to turn and face me, <clears throat> and uh, I'm going to ask you to respond uh, in our membership covenant here by just uh, saying we will when I give you the nod, okay? I'm going to ask you some questions this morning, and uh, just affirm uh, by, by answering we will. Having received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and being led by God to unite with the Lakeside Church family... Will you protect the unity of this church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leaders? We will. will. All right. Will you share the responsibility of this church by praying for its spiritual growth, by inviting the unsaved to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who visit? Will you serve the ministry of this church by discovering your spiritual gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by the pastors and elders, and by developing a servant's heart? And then finally, will you support the testimony of this church by attending faithfully, by giving regularly, and by living a godly life? Amen. Let me pray for you, okay? Father God, thank you so much for these dear folks that you have led to us. Lord, thank you for leading them to Christ, for drawing them to yourself at different times in their lives and now drawing them to this church. And we ask that you would use our church to be a tremendous blessing to them as they continue to grow and mature in Christ, and that you would use these people to be a blessing to us, Lord, to help this body to grow and mature and to be more strong and healthy and more well-developed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use these folks um, in tremendous ways to, to round out this, this church, this body, to be all that you want it to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you guys turn back around, and uh, as you dismiss this morning, I want to invite you to come up here. And uh, maybe uh, start a line this way, because you'll start crashing in the middle, okay? If you just kind of come around this way and just uh, welcome these folks, give them, a sh- uh, give them a hug, give them a handshake, introduce yourself if you don't already know them, but uh, I know they'd love to meet as many of you as possible this morning, so take a few minutes to do that as we dismiss, all right? Go ahead. <laughs>